Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Haj Asad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. I'll reiterate, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists, and we're also pretty good friends. In fact, I'm such a good friend, I'm going to let Ben take over the podcast for a few moments just to tell everyone where they can find his work. I like, how, I like how ceding me the floor to speak is somehow akin to me taking over the podcast for a few moments. Look, you better plug your publications or I'll take the control right back. See, now who's in control? It feels like you were always in control. <laughs> Just tell them where they can read your story. All right, you can find my work at Motor Trend, at Car and Driver, at Driving Line, and at Inside Hook. And you really should visit all those websites because there's some great content coming from my friend Ben there. And you can find my work at autotrader.ca, as well as driving.ca, TechSpot, and Nouveau Magazine. Ben, let's talk about the car that you've been driving recently. Um, A small four-door, right? Yeah, a small four-door. I want to talk about it quickly. Uh, I didn't drive it that extensively, uh, unfortunately, because, get this, I live in Montreal, which is the worst place for potholes in, I think, North America. Well, I don't know. Detroit's pretty bad, too, from what I've heard. But... In any case, I was driving along. I hit a pothole. First of all, our listeners can tell we're pot, we're we're professional journalists because anytime we try to leave a fact that can't be verified immediately, we reel it right back, just like that. That's how it works. <laughs> Plausible deniability. In any case, I hit a pothole and I cut a tire, and the tire didn't oh. go down. Yeah, but it, uh, it it cut a gouge in the sidewall, so I ended up having to park the vehicle for about half the time I had it, which is unfortunate, but. I did drive it before that happened, and it was the 2022 Mini Cooper S, Sammy. And I know we've talked about Minis recently. Uh, I think two months ago I had the Mini Cooper JCW convertible. But this is a very, very different version of the vehicle. Not only is it not the high performance, it's like the mid-performance trim level, but it's also, mine was a four-door hardtop versus the convertible that I had before. Okay, that's, that is a dramatic difference. So not only is it less powerful, it's got fewer doors, it's got a roof. It's got more doors. Um, yeah, I mean, sorry, it's got more doors and it's got a roof. So it's pretty much a different car altogether. It's a completely right? different car. And you oh, know what? Yeah. I liked it a lot more than I did the JCW, and I think it had a lot to do with the perspective. Yeah, of course. I think price-wise, the um, the Cooper S is easier to justify in some cases than a very pricey convertible with... Not much more power, right? Exactly. So with the with the JCW, I can't remember exactly what the price point was, but I think it was like close to forty thousand, if if I recall correctly. Uh, the Cooper S hardtop starts around twenty seven, twenty eight, and that's a lot more reasonable. At that point, you're kind of up against vehicles like the Volkswagen Golf GTI and a few of the other hot hatches, like not the super hot hatches, but you know the Veloster Turbo. Uh, is that right. even still available, or is it all? I, I know in Canada, I it's, it's only Veloster N now, and that Veloster starts N. at thirty-two five in in the U.S. Okay, so it, it's it's a very different vehicle than that. I wouldn't want to compare it, but also Kia Rio Five. Uh, I think there's a there's a kind of a hot version of that, or a hotter version of that. Be kind of a vehicle that I would put around um, this model. In, in any Rio? case, no, no, G, uh, Forte or something, Forte Five or something, Forte. Is it Forte, Forte not Rio? Forte 5 GT? Forte GT? That's I don't right. know. That's Why right. do we not know any of the cars? Well, because I, I wasn't expecting to, to compare it to... It just kind of popped into my mind. Right. Okay. It's roughly... It's it's a little bit smaller, but roughly the same... I think I just hit the microphone. Sorry for everyone about that. I'm flailing with my arms as I try to 
get my bearings in this mini conversation. But uh, getting back to basics. <laughs> I just love you flailing your armful talking about it. It's him. so helpful, I mean, Sam. There is should... so much that, I mean, first of all, when a car is exciting and it gets your hands in motion when you're just talking about it, that's a good thing for that car, right? Flailing is such an important part of me understanding anything about the world. And I highly recommend it to anyone, any of you non-flailers, what are you waiting for? Uh, but getting get back your hands out of your pockets and, and get start. it in front of you, like Ricky Bobby in in his commercials. Um, so the the Mini Cooper S it has a four cylinder engine, a turbocharged four cylinder engine. So that's a step up over the three cylinder you get in the basic Mini. But it's 189 horsepower, uh, which is a number I like because the E30 325 had 189 horsepower from a 2.5 liter straight six. And that number has, I believe it was 189. Anyway, it's always stuck in my head. Um, I think also the M50 motor that BMW made that went into the E36 after that was 189 horsepower. Maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. I think the E30 was actually 164 horsepower. Anyway, this is a what tangent. What a journey. What a great journey. I loved being a part of that and not knowing anything you were talking about there. All right. <laughs> so back to the Mini. Uh, 189 horsepower gets you to 60 in 6.2 seconds. And you can get a six-speed manual or an eight-speed automatic. Mine had the automatic. It actually was a pretty decent transmission. I know I kind of complained about it in the John Cooper Works. But again, since this is the Mini Cooper S, my expectations are quite different. Uh, everything shifts to a more relaxed kind of, this is a fun vehicle, not necessarily a cutthroat sporty vehicle. I think it's the model for people who enjoy driving but don't necessarily want to have a suspension that's going to rattle their bones. And I think in that respect, the four-door version of the Cooper S accomplishes its mission. Sammy, okay. have you driven this vehicle? Um, I haven't driven the Cooper S four-door, but I have driven a Cooper four-door a long time ago, I'll admit. And um, I have a little bit more of a softer feel. I, I feel like I'm not as harsh on the Coopers um, for, for most of them. But um, as soon as I see the price points and the amount of options that our, our fleet company kind of like – like BMW loads these things with options – uh, on the fleet, so you have like a very well equipped but base three cylinder co- like Cooper, for example, and it's always so disorienting to be like, well, this this could be like a twenty thousand dollar car, but because you've decided to put a Union Jack all over it and customize this and that and added the improved uh, navigation system, it's like a ten thousand dollars more expensive than it used to be. It's very true. I mean, the model I drove came with something called the Premier Options Group, which I think is a Canadian thing. It was $8,000 Canadian, so or sorry, 8600 so that's roughly like 6000 US with the current exchange rate. I don't know yeah. how, but again, this is not something apples to oranges, but it came with a ton of stuff. Like this one package gives you like a, a heated steering, steering wheel, and I'm sorry, I need to correct myself on the transmission, Sammy. It oh. was, it's not, I said it was an 8-speed, it's actually a 7-speed DCT. On the Cooper S? On the Cooper really? S, yeah. And that's part of this Premier thing. So I, I, it comes with a manual as standard. But mm-hmm. the the Premier group, I guess, I'm assuming you could probably also add the automatic transmission on its own. But it's a 7-speed DCT. You get Napa leather on the steering wheel. You get a big sunroof. Like, actually, it was a huge panoramic sunroof. There's one in the front and one in the rear, which is strange to see in a Mini because you don't think of, like, <laughs> a Mini as needing dual sunroofs because it's not a huge vehicle. But that's just kind of how they chose to do it. <laughs> 
<laughs> it had a head-up display, automatic climate control, I mean, Apple CarPlay, all this stuff. It's honestly, the list of features for this one package, it's 20 items. Which is like 20% of the cost, of the base cost of the vehicle. Yeah, right? and then you end up, there's also, there was a $2,000 leather package in it as well. Um, and, but there were a couple of uh, a couple of features that were reasonably priced. So mine came out to um, if you're looking if you're looking at options versus base price in Canada, it was thirty thousand dollars starting and then ten thousand dollars worth of options. So yeah, my experience is not necessarily reflective of what you're going to get at that twenty eight thousand dollar price point. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like that one bit. Um, I think that's too many features. It doesn't. I don't think it's reflective of the value that a, a mini can have, but at the same time, I'm starting to believe that mini owners might not be necessarily after um, value first and foremost. They might be after a quirky, uh, a quirky car or something that's a bit more personalized um, I think you're right. to their to their liking, and that's what BMW and Mini offers with their with their vast options list, right? I think you're right, and I think that if you're looking at the base Cooper or the Cooper S, that's okay. I feel like the value is still. For someone who wants something different, it's not outrageous, and you could buy the base model and probably be reasonably happy with it. Yes, you're going to get more features from other hot hatches. Yes, they're going to be more practical, but they're not going to have the same kind of style and not the same kind of ownership experience. And some people are willing to go for that, and I, I feel like under $30,000, I don't have as large of an issue with that as I do with the JCW, which is trying to be something that I don't think it properly is able to fully be. Uh, yeah. But uh, you had mentioned before the podcast we were talking about this. You said that for you, the four-door Mini is the wrong Mini to get. And I'm curious as to whether you could tell me why you feel that way. I mean, I just don't think it looks right. I don't think it's it fits right. Like, I don't know. The, the back seats are not super conducive to um, to having a like a different set of doors back there. I don't think this is a, a practical car, right? That's all I'm saying. And I think the four-doors... Are, it just does not paint it as a mini, like a, a, tr- a traditional or true mini in any way or form. I just don't think it's right. I do agree with you that um, the look of the four-door car is unusual, and it kind of feels almost almost like it's from a different branch of the family tree compared to the two-door. Yeah. Like it, it, it's like they wanted to create a four-door, so they're going to, okay, we're going to stretch it out a little bit. We're going to add these doors and hope nobody notices that it's kind of awkward. Like I don't think it's ugly, but I do think that the two-door is a, a much better representation of Mini's current styling cues. And I also think that like the two-door, you can fit people in in behind you, and it's also a, re- it's a surprisingly spacious cabin. Uh, for two people and for like that pinch third or fourth, or you can fold down those rear seats and have a massive amount of storage space. Like, yeah. It is surprisingly practical um, as a two door, and I don't think they should have compromised with the design by by making it a four door. But say, but at the same time, the four door does offer more cargo space, and I okay. think if I don't know who's putting baby seats in the back of a mini, but if you are, yeah. you're, you're going to appreciate those extra doors in the back. So, you know. I think it's in there to offer a quote-unquote practical version of a car that's maybe not seen as practical, and that probably gets a few more butts and seats for Mini. Uh, yeah. I, you, well, you mentioned the spaciousness of the interior, and I think that's something worth talking about because it's strange to be in a Mini and realize just how large it is inside. I had the car set up, so I like to sit 
with the steering wheel fully extended towards me, usually I'm when every time there's an adjustable steering wheel, I have it as close to me as possible. And then I'm kind of like angled backwards away from the wheel. And okay. in the mini, when I do, I mentioned you have speak- that you have that gangster lean. You, you no, it's your- it's it's just I have a I have a short tor- a long torso and short legs, so it's just just how it works out. But um, in the mini, it was weird because that put the seat back almost into the second row, like See? in terms of lean. And then when uh, I was listening to the stereo, if I turned my head, I would have a different sound stage. Like I would move from the front speakers to the rear speakers based <laughs> just on the position of my head. And that was weird. I haven't had that experience in any other car. Wow. Did you, then you'd have to adjust the, like the balance of the fade with that. Oh, I'm always, I got my hand on the fader the whole time. You know me. I'm <laughs> yeah. always like crossfading and you know, turning your the, head. Worker, worker, always do it. Everything like that. Um, so overall, your impressions on this car were, were positive. Do you think that transmission, that motor uh, comes together nicely? Tell oh, yeah, me it doesn't feel like a DCT at all. It's quite smooth. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's remarkably smooth. Really a well-executed transmission, which is uh, impressive because we've ragged on BMW-based DCTs in the past. I mean, the M3, the M4, the previous generation, we were not happy with those. I think that's kind of a universal thing. Uh, but this is uh, this is a transmission that did everything I needed it to do. Um, the car is reasonably quick, but again, 6.2 seconds is 60. It's not super fast. It's just fast enough to be fun. The suspension is, I mean, it's, again, oriented more towards fun than all-out sportiness, which is something that I like and I think makes sense at this price point. And uh, the car fits in really well in the city. Like uh, I had just come off of driving a Chevy Silverado and I was, it was so. <laughs> Talk about a contrast. Wow. It was, it was a huge adjustment to make. And uh, from a parking perspective on my street, there's been a lot of construction recently. And as a result, there's just more cars parked around where I live. And it's been harder to find spaces that were large enough for the Silverado. But with the mini, I could squeeze in almost anywhere. And that's something I really appreciated. And maybe something we don't talk about enough when we're discussing smaller hatchbacks. It's almost always like, oh, it's small, so it's kind of a penalty box. But no, it's small, so it fits where you need it to fit in your lifestyle kind of deal. This is actually, that is a really important thing to bring up about the Mini, is that, and I think we, we, we've, we've talked a little bit too much about this car. I, I'm surprised at how much the conversation has, has extended. But um, small cars are typically seen, just like you mentioned, as a penalty box. You, uh, they fit a budget, um, sometimes more, more often than not. And the product that you get is compromised in some way or another in terms of quality, fit and finish, in terms of features. And that never seems the case with these mini products. They always seem a little bit higher end than um, than other compact or subcompact cars. And, uh, it, the, you know, the other thing I think that kind of gets talked about with mini is it's it's presented as a premium brand. But the interior cabin experience, it's not super premium. Oh, it's you, you know, think so? I think it's fine. I don't have an issue with it. But I Do you think it skews more to like a mainstream band like a Honda or Toyota or or better better or worse than that, right? I think that if you were to compare a mini interior to something like what you would find in the GTI, I don't think the GTI would come off badly at all. Yeah, okay, that's fair. So, you know, that premium aspect I don't think anyone should get into a Mini and expect luxury. And and right. even I'm saying this with a car that had thousands and thousands of dollars in options that were all skewing towards luxury, right? So mm-hmm. it's a car that where you're, you're definitely paying for the brand and the image and you have to be okay with that. And you have to realize that your content-wise, it's not necessarily going to be king of the hill. Okay. Um, anything else you want to talk about with this Mini? 
I think, like you said, the two-door is the one to target, but don't rule it out. I mean, if you have your heart set on a mini and you need extra doors, you need the rear doors, for whatever reason, give it a try, drive it, see how it feels. Also drive other hatchbacks, drive the Kia, drive the Volkswagen, and just kind of get a sense for where the Mini is positioned in the market before you make your decision. Can I also add, you know, we talk, we didn't talk enough about the Veloster N, I think, as a competitor to the Mini or the JCW. Um, and I feel like that is like a product that went, somebody, like somebody at Hyundai said, well, we can have a high-performance subcompact, and uh, if, if their customers want it to be quirky, well, our car has three doors instead of four, that's quirky. Boom, done. We've, we've delivered on, that, on, the, on the check marks. But the, the N is also way more hardcore. Yeah, of course. Um, I would like to talk um, about something a little bit different than, than usual. I want to talk about some recent news. Mercedes recently announced their 2022 Mercedes. Now, you're going you're gonna to get this. Mercedes AMG SL class. Now, if you remember, the SL is an um, executive class convertible. In fact, I think it's hard to forget. But as far as I remember, Mercedes stopped selling the SL for about a year or so. And let the AMG GT Roadster take its place for, for a while. And um, now that, that this SL nameplate is coming back, and it's coming with a few extra features. For example, it's going to come with all-wheel drive. It's going to come with rear seats. And it's going to have a soft top instead of a hard top. Now, all of these things are a little bit different than, the usual, than what we've come to expect from the SL class over the years. And I think that's important to bring up because... To me, the SL is kind of like an icon. It's right up there with the rest of the the other Mercedes icons, like the S Class and the G Class. And to to see the SL change so dramatically, um, and especially now that it's going to be developed or, or it's being developed or has been engineered by the AMG department rather than Mercedes Benz, um, the, the the regular people who make these uh, these cars, I think it it paints a very different picture for for what the SL is now or is going to be in the future. I, I don't think it's nearly as sudden as you make it out to be. Uh, I think that the writing has been on the wall for the SL for at least 10 years, maybe more. Because if you go back to 2001 when the R230 SL came out, and that's the one that I think kind of really pushed the SL in a much more flagship direction. I mean, in the 90s, we had... The, the the car the, the SL has always been a compromise between class style and performance. Like it was never an right. all out sports car, except when it first came out. Like when you yeah, had, when it first came out, when you had the Gullwing with the space frame and all that stuff. Uh, but it, it very quickly morphed into something that was you know a, a, a gentle person sports car, mm-hmm. where it was like a, a personal luxury, and, and it kind of carved out a whole niche there. But when you got to the year two thousand. Things really got wild with the SL, where you started seeing insane AMG versions with like 738 pound-feet of torque. You yeah. saw a larger body. Uh, we had the retractable hardtop. I think it's for the first time arrived around that that year. Yes, it was. It was that that model. The power um, retractable hardtop. Yeah. Well, the only retractable hard. I mean, they had other hardtops that were attachable, which was Ooh. kind of a traditional. SL thing, but this was the first time it was it was retractable, and uh, it really it got crazy. Like there were so many AMG versions, and then I think the version that replaced that in 2012, the R231, it, it just kind of doubled down on the size and the bloat of the car, and we you ended up with something that was. Whereas once before it had kind of been on its own, there weren't a lot of other German 
roadsters that could compare to it. Now you had a car that wasn't that different from the 6 Series. Maybe wasn't that yep. different from the Jaguar XK. And uh, yep. it, it lost its way a little bit. And I kind of feel like what you've just described, giving it a backseat and all-wheel drive, it, it's the next natural progression for the SL just in terms of how Mercedes has been treating it. And I mean, th- that additionally, this these last few years for Mercedes... There was also, not only was there the AMG GT, there was also the, um, there used to be an S-Class Coupe, remember this? And there used to be an S-Class Coupe, or, or S-Class Cabrio. Yes. So, now, it seems like this new SL is going to be not only carrying the flag for the um, SL-Class, but t- potentially the S-Cabrio, and this AMG GT Roadster. And I mean, I don't know, the SLC or SLK has not been seen or heard in a while, too. So, Well, I mean, the SLK was never a strong seller. I, I, SLC, uh, it, it just, it, it was a car that like the, the the Z4 and the Z3 from BMW never really found its audience. Um, and I think that that's because just no one's buying small roadsters anymore. I mean, one of the best cars on the planet is the Boxster from Porsche and very few people buy that. So if you, if you can't sell copies of one of the best cars on the planet... <laughs> Uh, yeah. what, what chance do you have to sell softer copies of that car, right? So so I think what we're really seeing here is Mercedes' 911 competitor, which is wild because to me the SL never was um, a real 911 competitor, a true 911 competitor. It was it's always its own alternative to somebody who didn't want a 911. Like they were like, I could get this instead. I mean, And they- now it feels like something that's so much more like almost derivative, which kind of – which kind of sucks. Sure, I mean, there's a there are a few different takes on the whole four door luxury roads uh, luxury convertible thing, right? Like you have the 911, yeah. which is kind of the the default standard car that a lot of people wear like a uniform when they get to a certain level of financial success in their lives. And now the it, BMW M850, right? I I guess so. I mean, I don't see the M850 as being equivalent to the 911. I would say it's probably closer to where the SL is going. For sure. Okay. I think when you said that the, the S-Class Cabriolet disappearing um, and being mer- merged into this product, I, that totally makes sense to me because that was another very slow-selling car for Mercedes. Uh, but also, you know, they, you have the F-Type, which I think is closer to yeah. the 911 in terms of performance and attitude. But far from where this S-Class is going, although they're both, re- they're both all-wheel drive um, models, I think the F-Type is a little more focused and a little bit smaller. It just mm-hmm. it's, it seems strange to try to take what you said, the, the, the flagship, you know, an icon of your brand, and kind of try to make it a do-everything kind of um, stopgap in your lineup. Like, there's a bunch of white space we're going to fill with one car now. And, and yeah, put it, put it in perspective. The G-Class... There's no compromise on the G class. That is what the G class is, right? Yes, when, but the G, when you look at but G class is is a benefit of SUVs being super hot. I mean, roadsters yes. are the least sexy segment from a sales perspective. I think I don't know what sells. I think they sell less than full size luxury sedans, which is like the next step up in cars and that then, no one yeah. buys anymore. <laughs> so then let's talk about the full size, the S class. You know what you're getting with an S class. I mean, it's it's not sporty. It's that I don't know if you know if despite there being AMG S classes. They're not sporty cars. They like stick to their, and they. I guess Mercedes sets the standard with that class altogether with with what the S is. Every time an S comes out, all the competition kind of tries to keep up with it. And the SL, I don't think, is paving its its own way anymore. And uh, I I I agree with you. I mean, it's 
not surprising that this happened. I guess it is sad. For me, the SL class, the classic version of the SL class, it was done in the 90s when that when that model left. It was really clear that the direction was bigger, better, and and louder um, once the 2000s started. So I, I guess I've already mourned for this car. Okay. I'm. It, we should probably be happy that it still exists at all because you mentioned the AMG GT earlier. I don't think this car is going to take the place of that because that is a fantastic sports car. And yeah. probably the closest thing to a 911 that Mercedes-Benz has ever built. It's there's something going on with AMG, the AMG GT at this SL. I think there's it's either going to be the underpin the the, the sort of platform mate, or somehow they're going to make a, a new GT out of this SL. Um, and I don't know how they're going to pull that off because starting with a convertible seems like a tough a tough a tough a tough starting point. Yeah, I don't I don't know I don't see why they can't sell both. But uh, I guess we'll find out. Now, the other thing about the SL is, and this is weird, but it's always been a like a classic. Like it always feels like it's been a classic. I feel like getting one, uh, you see these things at auction sites or like bring a trailer or whatever. And, and it's not just like the ultra old ones, like from the uh, '60s, but some of the '70s models ones are are, are gaining uh, popularity on those sites. Even the '80s and '90s ones. If they're uh, particularly special examples, like, say, that uh, SL73, for example, which had, like, a 12-cylinder engine that was shared with a Pagani, for example, those things can go for wild money. So it's interesting. I'm curious to see whether or not that last-generation SL will follow the same trend and if this new one will carry that uh, that going forward as well. Oh, absolutely not. There's, there's zero I chance. don't think so. I think these are feeling a little bit more mass market and less special as we go on. I think the AMG GT is like the most special feeling vehicle in the Mercedes lineup right now. And uh, I, I think that this is, you know, a completely different customer. So I don't see, I don't foresee it having the same kind of vitality that it would need to claim its spot in the pantheon of uh, past SLs. Now I want to talk about another product that uh, lost its way a long time ago or lost its chance a long time ago. Um, and this is the Hummer. Actually, you wanted to talk about this. I did. I, you're taking stealing my thunder here. Taking so why don't you take? Why don't you tell me what was going on in your head when you when you pitched this idea to me for the podcast? Here? So I've been I've been working on a bunch of articles lately about Hummer, uh, specifically Hummer in the early 2000s to late 2000s. So for everyone who's not familiar, the cliff notes are: GM was building the H1 as a military vehicle, and it had a company called AM General. AM General was assembling them, selling them, etc. They became kind of a luxury object. They ended up building the H2, which was a version of the Hummer that used heavy-duty pickup truck platform from General Motors. And they sold that for less than 10 years uh, until the global recession happened in 2008-2009. And then after the 2009 bankruptcy and reorganization of GM, Hummer, along with Pontiac, was was just eliminated as a brand so no more hummers but in in that period of time we got the h2 and we got the h3 which was sold. both of those were sold as pickup trucks and suvs yep. and uh they were oriented the, i wanted to focus first on the h2 because when it came out it was pretty unique it was a huge heavy duty off-road vehicle and there wasn't any there wasn't anything else like that from detroit i mean we just talked about the g-class being kind of the same thing um, it was big, 
old school and mechanical locking diffs and all that stuff, upright styling. The H2 was kind of an an excessive version of what you would want to take off-road. It was actually pretty decent off-road as long as you stuck to trails that didn't, you know, get too narrow. That's always the yeah, issue. That's yeah, that weaved it out, of course. You, you can't turn around corners. You can't get between a rock and a cliff and you, you end up rolling them, and et cetera, et cetera. But the reason I'm talking about the H2 to start off with is because right around the early 2000s, there were two other companies from Detroit that had brought out concept cars, concept trucks, I should say, that were almost the same in terms of the market they were trying to capture. So Chrysler came out with the Dodge Power Wagon, which was like this big, rugged looking, it was like a truck that drew from the original Power Wagon from the 40s. Yeah. That had like big outboard fenders and whatnot, and it was super heavy duty. It had a it had a diesel engine, but it was funny because it wasn't a Cummins diesel engine. It was a Caterpillar diesel engine. Which oh my is, gosh! Okay, yeah, it's just strange because Cummins was such a partner with Dodge, and they were so well known. Anyway, they came out with that, and at the same time, Ford came out with something called the Equator, which looked like basically a Ford Hummer. If you look up Ford Equator, yep. it don't there's gonna be you'll find two results. One of them is a a seven row seven row <laughs> seven passenger SUV. They sold seven row a bus. Yeah, okay. it's a bus. It's a bus slash limo. No, but they they offered a there's a, a crossover that they offer in other markets called the Equator. Yep. But they built this like H two looking Ford, and um, this is just before the the H two came to the market. So. Ford and, and Dodge never never brought these vehicles out. They ended up becoming styling exercises that kind of informed what pickups and SUVs would look like for each brand moving forward. The reason being, in my opinion, is that Hummer was able to use the AM General Assembly line to build its vehicles, whereas Ford and Dodge would have had to take resources away from their pickup trucks that were making a ton of money to take a risk on these large off-roaders that maybe no one was going to buy. So it ended up not happening. But Sammy, my, my, my statement is, I think if Dodge had made the Power Wagon and if Ford had made the Equator, then Hummer would have still be around today. Not as an EV sub-brand of GMC, but as an actual SUV builder. I I don't know how much I, I agree with this statement. I know we tend to agree on a lot of things, but I don't know if I agree on this because I think the Hummer brand and name meant something a little bit more than just um, off-roading. I think it stood for sort of excessiveness that was really not appreciated or, or it just wasn't... T- it just wasn't uh, in vogue at that time, and it kind of – it was bad branding, in my opinion, that people were wanting to buy these – I mean, I know there's Escalades, there's Navigators, there's other ginormous – there's G-Classes, um, luxury vehicles that sort of carried that that staple of being excessive. But the H2 and the H1 before it had this, like, stigma, I think, of just being a little bit too much for the regular person – um, and they meant something for uh, on the road. They, they they provided a statement on the road that I don't think people really wanted to as, be associated with. Well, it's funny that you Or the say, automaker might not have wanted to be associated with. It's funny that you say that because, you know, just a few years after the bankruptcy reorganization that yeah. hit General Motors and, and Fiat Chrysler and, and all those guys, uh, we ended up living in an SUV universe where absolutely yeah. every vehicle was an SUV. And it's like and Hummer... Bigger, and, than they needed, bigger than they needed to be, for Hummer sure. Ended, and we're seeing it now today. We're seeing humongous 
rugged, boxy, wild, bigger than they need to be vehicles being sold to everybody, right? Yeah, and Hummer just missed out on that era. Hummer was shuttered a couple of years before that really took off. So I think that if Ford and and Dodge had come up with those vehicles, there would have been enough interest in the market to convince GM to keep Hummer on life support just long enough for it to get its second wind. And I know politically everything you're saying about the excessive nature of the vehicle is true. I mean, Ford had its own heavy-duty SUV, the Excursion, around the same time. It wasn't as off-road focused, so it's not really within the scope of being an H2 competitor. Because also it wasn't not just the off-road, but it wasn't upscale like the H2 was marketed. Mm-hmm. But uh, they got rid of it because it was just not really in sync with the times. Fuel prices were getting really high, et cetera, et cetera. There is one other vehicle I think that could have helped save Hummer. That it's, it's a pro- it solves this problem of you know giant excessive vehicle. And that's the Hummer HX, which was a concept that came out, had the misfortune of coming out in 2008, just as the recession was happening. Yeah. It was a two-door, sloped-back version of the Hummer styling. You could take the doors off, you could take the roof off, you could take the, the roof over the rear of the vehicle completely off. It was really cool in the sense that it's probably the most direct Wrangler competitor that would have been uh, built in that era. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I think it could have come in as the H4 and done a lot of damage for General Motors because General Motors has never had an off-road focused SUV. I mean, the Blazer is probably the closest thing they ever had. I mean, they had a ZR2 version of the small Blazer in the early 2000s. But this is something that would have filled a really unique gap in in the General Motors showroom. Mm-hmm. And it would have been something we know that people are interested in Wrangler fighters. Right now we have the Bronco as being the closest thing we've had in a long time. This would have been different than the Nissan Xterra. It would have been different than the FJ Cruiser, both of which were more traditional in their design and you couldn't take doors off and stuff. Yeah. And it, it never got a chance to shine. So I think, you know, this perfect storm, I hate using that term. I forget I ever said that. This okay. could, this um this weather movement. This, this weather, weather system. <laughs> this meteorological convergence of Dodge, Ford, and Hummer itself having these vehicles that never made it to production were ultimately yeah. what sealed Hummer's fate in addition to kind of that antipathy that it was facing because of the excess, because of the, the amount of resources it used and all of that stuff. Okay, well, first of all, for the listeners who want a visual representation of this H4 or HX, they can't see it right now. I need you to imagine the warthog from Halo, and essentially this is what this thing looked like. It was a – this is GM's concept car division at its best, I think. They made a really good-looking um, rugged SUV, and it's a shame that this didn't get um, brought, out to, to, brought, out, brought to reality. Now, um, I'm worried about this whole thesis that you're making – The Jeep Wrangler has succeeded for a long time, and every time another automaker has brought in something to to try to take away the the piece of the the pie that that serves the the that that the Jeep Wrangler serves, it doesn't last very long. The FJ Cruiser, the Xterra, um, and other SUVs didn't last very long, and they. I mean, I think a lot of people went. If I can get a if I if I can get a Jeep Wrangler. Why don't I just get a Jeep Wrangler instead of getting one of these other two vehicles? Well, I, I think the same thing could have happened would have happened with the Hummer as well. It's not that those like those cars, those the, the this power wagon concept that would have come to fruition and this um what was the name of the Ford one again? The Equator. Sorry. Equator. 
if those had come out, I still think that people would have said the same thing. If I could get this, why would I get a Hummer alternative when I can just get the Hummer? And then you would drive sales for the Hummer, and then what would happen to those other brands and their products? Would they have left? Would that market be considered served? And they'd cut they'd cut their losses there, oh, but, or would they continue to make them stronger, like we're seeing with Ford and the Bronco? These I, I don't I don't agree with you because the the philosophy you're operating under is that there's only room for one player in every single market, and demonstrably that's not true. I, I think if that was in a, in a niche market like this, I think there would be there is one. Because yeah. if you're talking like you know the Ford F one fifty sells a million units a year, right? Which means no one would ever buy a Silverado, and yet people do buy the Silverado. <laughs> But that's not. I don't think that's a niche market. I think that has a very large audience base, and I don't think off roader off roaders are as general of an audience or broad of an audience than an, an F one fifty. I just think that there are people out there who are never going to buy a Wrangler because they don't want to own a Jeep, and okay. there are people out there who will only ever buy a Ford or only ever yeah. buy a Dodge. So those people are served by having competitors from those vehicles. I'm not saying that this is a vehicle that was going to end the Wrangler's reign. I'm saying it was going to tap into a market uh, in a way that the FJ certainly didn't because it's very different in terms of how it's presented. And yeah. the Xterra didn't because the Xterra is a four-door, which is you know completely outside of this this conversation in a sense. Um, and you mentioned the Bronco. Point, and I, mean, I also think, I also think I'm, I'm deviating from your original point, which was if these other products existed, then Hummer would have had a chance. And I think... I think that is a reasonable thing to say, but I don't know if the time was was going to be accepting of that of that. I mean, if profit. if Hummer had been profitable, yeah, it probably would have survived. But I mean, that would have, that's like saying if Hummer was successful, it would have, it would have survived. No, right? like, I, I I think that you know, like there are lots of brands for GM that were not successful that survived a very long time, like Saturn, right. <laughs> Yeah. You know? So, it but can, there were other markets that that Saturn kind of served. I think they really. had different. I swear that some products like uh, GM's other European brands or or Australian brands served around the market. They shared products, same platforms, and powertrains. The Hummer, I think, only served in North America. Yeah, but the Hummer was based built using parts that cost GM almost nothing because they already had them. It was it mm-hmm. that's that's again a big part of why it existed and the Ram and the Ford sorry the Dodge and the Ford didn't. Uh, but you know, Scion lasted a super long time without without yeah. being successful too. It's it's the optics of the time were bad, but you know we still. GM lied about all the stuff they were going to build, all the electric cars. So mm-hmm. did Chrysler. I yep. mean, if they were okay with lying about that kind of stuff, they probably would have been okay with keeping a a healthier Hummer in the mix. Sure. I mean, there, there's always a what if. I mean, I think there's a whole Marvel TV show and well, comic this entire this entire conversation is a what is a what if. Yeah. So I mean, I think you know, the, if the multiverse happens and we we go into a world there where Hummers are still around because the Dodge um, Power Wagon, which the name has come through in in a off road trim of the HD trucks, right? The yes. Rams um, and the Equator. That nameplate has now been affixed to a a global mark, a global product. Right? Yeah, but it's global completely, absolutely unrelated. It's but just completely off road, not off road oriented, right? No, it's, it's just a name. But now they're bringing back this. They're bringing back an off road version of like the Expedition and the Explorer. I mean, it just seems like it, the timing was weird at that time, and people were not interested in. 
either off-roading or something like that. No, they just and, had a chance to build a market and they didn't do it properly and they, they were the only ones in it. Yeah, okay. Know? Sure. So, they were ahead of their time, yeah. Uh, but uh, speaking of uh, – there's something else I want to talk about before we wrap things up today. And that's uh, some really disturbing um, – a report about Rivian, which is a electric vehicle manufacturer that we've discussed in the past on the show. And they, they've come out with the R1T and the uh, pickup trucks and the SUVs, full-size battery-powered vehicles. Uh, so Laura Schwab is someone who was – she was the president of Aston Martin Americas for five years. And I've had the good uh, fortune of meeting Laura multiple times and working with her. And she ended up taking a job at Rivian where she was um, – a I believe, if I understand this correctly, she was in, in, essentially in charge of their their PR. They didn't have any anyone doing that. She was VP of Sales and Marketing, um, and she tried to make a go of it before discovering that the company was run by what she's termed a boys' club of toxic bro culture. She posted yep. something on Medium today, which was picked up by the Wall Street Journal. And just describing the experience of being completely frozen out of any decision making at Rivian, but not just her, the only other female executive on the team was also in the same position. And she was effectively unable to do her job, Sammy. And she got to the point where she reported to HR that, hey, I I can't work. I can't even, you know, she wasn't able to schedule meetings with the uh, other executives, with the owner of the company, with whoever was in charge. Just no one was, they were like, oh, we'll message you and we'll message you uh, outside of work hours. We're just too busy and all this stuff. So she eventually told HR, look, I can't, I can't do my job. This is why I feel like it's, it's, you know, I'm being excluded because of who I am. And two days after that happened, um, she was fired by that same HR person. That's that's wild. Um, I don't like it. I don't I, reading this reading this um, this medium post. It just paints a lot of things wrong with uh, with the industry or or with and with how we how we deal with with treating treating one another. This shouldn't be that difficult. If somebody has been hired to to perform the role, you should probably enable them to do that and not freeze them out. Um, and, and that's, it's just hard to understand and, and see that this is still happening these days. This Laura I mean, worked Laura, at, at Laura, one of the most prestigious automakers in the world at Aston Martin. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're get, if you're losing talent, like if you're firing yeah. talent, like Laura Schwab, because she made a complaint that, you know, about the culture of your company, that is a huge loss for your company. I mean, yeah. It's not Laura's loss here. Laura is being victimized by this toxic bro culture. And Rivian is losing an extremely talented executive in the process. I don't understand how a company that is trying to establish itself can just be so careless about um, divesting itself of people they need in order to succeed as a company. I mean, this is a woman with 20 years experience uh, in in automotive, starting out at the entry level, working her way up to be the first female president in Aston, at, at Aston Martin. I mean, yep. that is incredible. And it's even more incredible that Rivian would turn its back on that. Rather than if someone in your company says, there's a problem with your company, I can't do my job, you're supposed to say, okay, we need to fix that. You're not supposed to fire the person who's trying to fix your company. So I just, you know, 
this is pretty disgusting and it's upsetting I mean, to it's... hear that Rivian is like this. And obviously that company needs to change. And... It's pretty telling for an auto, an automaker that hires people so frequently, like at a, at a dizzying rate, like of 100 people a, like a week or something, and then terminates them with the reason of, of reorganization when she's the only person being let go. That's nonsense. Like it really cannot – she is a – she is a – like she's a, a, a person with a, with a record of, of being a fantastic – employee and has a track record of of success and, and a track record let... of, of leadership too this is yeah you know, she could have left but instead she took took it upon herself to say you know what let's try and fix this yeah and that's something that a leader does i don't want to dwell on this too much longer but i do want to say that uh, my enthusiasm for rivian has uh, plummeted yeah and i can't nice, really yeah. see myself being all that interested in you know it's a company that had great products and apparently is run by the worst people imaginable so yep. uh, do something about that, Rivian, and any other companies that are in similar positions, and there are a lot of them, I'm sure, you, you're you on notice because this kind, of, this kind of stuff, this has to stop, and it has to stop now. I really encourage people to check that story, uh, that post out. It's on medium, medium.com, at uh, Laura Schwab. That's, that's her. Yeah, and we'll link to it in the show notes. You'll be able to find it there. Perfect. Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode, and why wouldn't you, um, you can check out all of our other episodes just by going to our website, unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. And while you're there, you can also subscribe so that you can um, listen to our future episodes. Additionally, you'll see photos of all of the cars that we've been talking about. And uh, there's also an easy way to get in touch with us through a contact form over there. Now, if that doesn't suit you, you want to get a little bit more personal, and um, I really wouldn't blame you. You can reach out to us on social media. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, H-A, like you're laughing. And you can find Ben on Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. Additionally, if you want to reach out to us the old-fashioned way, um, like not, not snail mail, but I mean just a regular email, you can do that. It's Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. Sammy, what are you going to be driving next week? I'm going to be talking about the BMW... Okay, I've got I've got to get this name right. It's called the M440i X-Drive Grand Coupe. Aha, okay, that's it. that is a lot to say. I will be talking about the Kia Carnival, which is a minivan that so far is living up to the joyousness that is expressed by its name. Very cool. I can't wait, and I'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. Bye.